This is Ivarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. The interview you are about to hear was recorded several weeks ago, before the terrible events in Orlando, Florida this past weekend, where a gunman took the lives of 49 people and wounded over 50 others. Our guest Kathy Shore's photo project, Shot, focuses on gun violence and its effect on the lives of people who have survived their wounds. It's a sensitive subject, but especially right now. So please know that this episode may be very sensitive for some listeners. I think it's important to stand together as people and a community during times like these, and I'd like to encourage listeners to consider contributing to the GLBT Community Center of Central Florida to help them with their work with a community of people directly impacted by this attack. I'll have a link in the show notes as well as on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Well, Kathy, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really excited to have you on the, on the show. Why don't we start off um, with you telling us about your project, SHOT. Sure. Um, SHOT is a project about shooting survivors, people who have been themselves shot. Um, it's a nationwide project. I traveled uh, about 100,000 miles over two years and two or three months around the United States. I wanted it to be an extremely uh, mixed project with many kinds of people, diverse geographically. And we have, I'm very happy to say, all uh, races, many ethnicities, ages 8 to 80, uh, men and women from all different kinds of shooting situations in the project. And what, what spurred your, uh, your interest in doing this? Well, I can't say that it was one specific thing. There were a number of reasons uh, that kind of uh, came together to make me have an interest in this. I myself, years ago, had been robbed at gunpoint, and now they call it a home invasion. Years ago, it was a, you know, a robbery in your house, an armed robbery in your house. But um, I have had a gun pointed in my face and also my daughter was a little toddler at the time so she you know I had the person that was closest to me in my life there as a little child with two people inside of my home attempting to a robbery and I had that feeling you know is something that stays with you forever I, I don't think that that's something you can ever get a, away from the fact that somebody controls your destiny some stranger de de depending on their whim decides whether you or the person that you're with lives or dies. So um, that was one thing that was in the back of my mind. I also felt like we always hear about people who have been killed in shootings, and we never were, were hearing anything about the people who had survived these kind of tragedies. And I was really curious about bringing a face to those people rather than just saying, oh, well, they're lucky they survived. Let, let's forget about them. I wanted to really start to look at them as people in a, in a, in a situation that uh, affects everybody. Nobody is exempt from gun violence. So I started thinking about survivors as, as people that I would like to uh, get to know and, you know, tell their story. And then I also felt that the country, United States, had gotten and is still and getting more so very polarized 
and that nobody was really talking to each other. Everybody was talking at each other. And I thought that, you know, this gun violence is something that I think most Americans are appalled by and upset about and want to do something about. And that nobody could really talk about it because people had chosen sides and those sides were black and white and never gray. There was never any, you know, it was, well, either you, you wanted to have guns or you were against the Second Amendment and you didn't want to have guns. And nobody was really um, trying to bring out the, the issues that were in this big category of guns. And so I thought, well, maybe if people would see other Americans who looked just like them or who were in situations that they themselves could relate to, that people would start to feel, wow, that, you know, that could, that could have been me. The other thing I didn't mention when I, I should have before about shot is that most of the survivors are photographed where they were shot to add this other element to the project. So even if you looked at 101 diverse faces of, of gun violence and you said, well, none of them are like me, you might be able to relate to the places where they were shot because the places are, for the most part, extremely normal and banal places. Many people are shot in their homes, in their cars. I was quite surprised at how many people were shot in their cars. Uh, shopping centers in front of the Walmart, the, the gym, all kinds of places. Even before Charleston happened, I had somebody that was photographed, uh, that was uh, shot in a church as well. And I thought that that was incredible. And then a few months later, Charleston happened. So the idea of the project was basically to not be polarizing or div divisive, but actually to have people relate to it and be able to start a dialogue, a positive dialogue about this issue. It seems like other than, you know, say these mass shootings, I think there's a, a, an assumption that if you're in a situation where you're shot, that the fault partly lies with the person who's shot because of the friends that they chose or where they decided to go. And I think that your, your, your project sort of speaks to the idea that, uh, unfortunately, this, this phenomenon is a lot more democratic and, and that people aren't necessarily uh, at, at fault in any way for the circumstances under which they, they've been attacked and, and shot. What were some of the perceptions, perceptions you had going in that, that were changed as a result of working on this project? Well, I wasn't uh, surprised at the, all the people, the kinds of people, the different people that are affected. I, 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 I understood that. I guess the the thing that I would say that I was really uh, taken aback with was the issue of domestic violence and how, again, that's something that I have a bank vice president who was shot by her husband, women of every color, every age, different socioeconomic statuses. That is something that is very democratic, domestic violence. And it was very upsetting to see that this was happening across the board to all kinds of women. And it's a very cliched reason, too. I mean, most of the time it happens when the woman is fed up with the situation and is ready to leave. And also that saying of, if I can't have you, nobody can, 
is said quite a lot. So it, it, in some ways, it's extremely cliched. It's, you know, somebody is get, getting ready to leave and they're not going to be under your thumb anymore. The other thing is with domestic violence that people don't do that to scare somebody and say, oh, I'll shoot you in the arm and you'll, you know, you'll, you won't, you won't do that again. You won't leave me. In domestic violence, the shooter intends to kill the person. They shot, they are shot in the face or the torso. So it, they are meant to be killed. Some of the men kill themselves afterwards, some don't. But the stories are so normal and so in many ways that it, it's just, it's hard to hear, hear all that. And I think two of the women that in the project never had any warning sign of that. And by that, I mean, there wasn't abuse prior to that, hmm. which is even more chilling because uh, one woman told me how she was called to her husband's cousin's house to talk with him. And she was sitting on the sofa. And when she got there, he just went over to her and shot her in the head and blinded her. Another woman in, in Miami, a wonderful woman, whose husband was in the military. A lot of these guys, unfortunately, are military, ex-military. And her husband was never abusive to her, and he actually donned his fatigues and army assault clothing and shot her in the parking lot of the uh, apartment house uh, complex where they lived. And actually, it, it got into this kind of you know, like that he was going into battle and he had never been abusive to her before that too. So, mm. uh, they kind of show no, you know, no warning sign and uh, suddenly this happens. But for the majority of women that were affect are affected by domestic violence, uh, usually it's the culmination of other situations that occur. Yeah. For the, for the victims, they, there must be so much emotion and, and, and just unimaginable thoughts that, that go through their head well after the events have taken place. But you as the photographer are asking them to sort of revisit that and be the, not only be the subject of, of a photograph, but do it within the context of where they, uh, where they were shot. Tell me about you know, the whole process in terms of your own sort of thought process about approaching people and ask, asking them to do that. Well, of course, as you, the beginning is always hard, harder because you've never done it before and you don't really have anything to show in terms of, you know, other people who are taking part in this project. I, I started out, I was, I had been thinking about this project and I had my television on as I was doing things in the house and heard New York One, which is a local New York uh, station, there was a gentleman on there speaking who had been shot about seven weeks prior to that. And I ran into my kitchen and listened to him, and he had a very unusual name. It was uh, his first name and his last name probably altogether had about 25 letters in it. So I thought, let me Google him and talk to him and, and see what he thinks about this project. So I emailed him. I found his email. He was doing a blog, so it was easy to get in touch with him. And we communicated back and forth, and I told him what I was interested in doing, and he said that he would like to do it. And then I said to him, you know, I'm also interested in, in going back to the so-called scene of the crime and photographing there. Would you be comfortable with that? And he said yes. So 
I met him in Brooklyn. This happened in Brooklyn. His name is Antonius. And uh, he took a Zan- he told me he took a Xanax before mm-hmm. meeting me to, so that he would be able to go back to the, the place where it happened. And we went back there, and people actually on the street were shaking his hand. Because re- this happened in uh, the middle of the afternoon on a crowded Brooklyn street corner where some guy saw his ex-girlfriend and decided he was going to shoot through a crowd to, to shoot his ex-girlfriend. And Antonius was shot in the torso and very seriously hurt. And we photographed, and he was he thanked me. He said, I, I feel like I've come in like a 360 circle. Like I, I, I came back here, and I took control of this space. I thought, wow. I can do it then. I mean, if he had this reaction, hmm. was so positive, and he was able to do it, then uh, I think other people will be able to do it as well. That was the start, and I think that he, it, that knowing that you know, once you have one person, then you can show the photographs, and they're happy with what what happened, what you did with them, the photos. So it kind of snowballs. And then the, the fourth person I photographed was a, a gentleman who has since passed away, Colonel Bill Badger. He was shot and he was the hero of the Gabby Gifford shootings. Mm. He was uh, a 30-year Army colonel in his 70s, a big, strong man who jumped on the shooter after he was shot in the head at the Gabby Gifford shootings. And he was the one that I would say was very instrumental to the sh- how I proceeded with the project. The fact that he allowed me to come to photograph him, and this was the first high-profile shooting that I uh, um, survivor that I photographed. And he told me a story about I. He was one of you know this was one of these situations where you meet somebody. And in a few hours, the person kind of makes such an impact on your life and what you're doing that you're eternally grateful for that time that you had with them. And Bill was uh, from, I think, uh, North South Dakota. And he went back to Fargo, North Dakota, to speak at a gun violence prevention assembly of, of some sorts. And there were a lot of people with signs picketing the place where he was speaking and holding up the signs and talking about, you know, taking our guns away, that kind of thing. And Bill in his, and he's had a really majestic presence, like a, just a loving, strong presence. And he um, said, why are you, why are you holding those signs up and saying this? I'm just like you. I'm from here. I'm from South Dakota. I go hunting every summer with my son. We go pheasant hunting. I own guns. I'm a military person uh, for 30 years. Why are you protesting and not willing to listen to me to hear what I have to say about this situation? And he said that the signs came down and people started to listen to him. And I realized that this is, this is something we are Probably the most powerful people that can change this situation are people like Bill, legal gun owners, people who are, you know, have gone through the motions of, of, of obtaining guns, using them for sport or for target practice, for hunting, and also feel that this is, a, um, this is a, an area where we need to have license and registration and supervision of people who have guns. 
And I understood that this was um, the way for change would be from people like Bill, people who saw both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. Then I became very, there are a lot of gun owners in the project. And there's also an NRA member who credits having his gun in that situation with his survival. He was shot eight times before he was able to get his gun, so it didn't prevent him from getting shot, but it probably saved his life. So shot is presenting all situations, and we're not saying you have a gun, there's something, you know, I'm not putting my sensibilities out there on what I think is right. Me, myself, I was born in Brooklyn, I grew up in New York City, lived here my whole life. I have, uh, I don't have a gun. I don't have any reason to have a gun. But if I lived out west, I probably would have a gun because if I lived in a remote place, you know, I'm realistic about that. I'm not saying, but I, I don't feel that I have the right to tell people that live in, it's a very diverse country, people who live differently than I do, that they shouldn't have things that they've culturally grown up with. Many people that I photographed were hunting when they were little kids. It was something that they did with their families. It's not my place to say that you shouldn't do that. I might not want to do that, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you don't have any shortage of subjects for, for this project. And you started traveling across the country in order to find subjects uh, for, for shot. But tell me, what was the process for deciding who you would choose to photograph? Well, I I used a lot of different (laughs) ways to get people. In the beginning, well, throughout the whole project, I spent many, many hours on the computer doing research. Since I funded the project myself, I didn't have unlimited funds, and I had to be strategizing. Like, if I go out to California, I need to have... uh, at least three or four people in that area for me to go there to make the trip possible. So normally if I, once I would get one person, I would try to look for a few others in that close area that I could photograph at the same time. So sometimes, especially like with uh, the Gabby Gifford shooting and Aurora, I did old fashioned snail mail letters. I went online and looked for a listings of the names of people who had survived the situation and then wrote a letter and looked in the white pages to see if I came up with an address that kind of matched where, you know, where they were from. So Bill actually wrote back to me, Bill Badger, from that letter. And in Aurora, I had an Air Force Reserve uh, woman named Moni who wrote back from me and was in Aurora. And she said she wanted to be in the project. So some people I, I got in that way. Others, I had lawyers and nonprofits and religious organizations, all kinds of people that I would kind of approach and say, do you know anybody that was shot? Do you think they might want to participate in this? And then actually when the project started to get a lot of online presence, people started to write to me and say that they wanted to be in the project. So it got easier as time went on because of what I had in terms of press to show people. Mm-hmm. But the heart, I say the hardest person I got and and that's my hardest person to get was a Native American. And I really felt that I could not 
complete the project without having a Native American in the project. So that was very, very difficult for probably two years. I went down all kinds of routes of organizations and tribal things and would always hit a brick wall. And I needed to have them, someone in the Dakotas in the project in that part of the country. And I read this story about a domestic violence shooting with a young 22-year-old Native American. And the story was just heartbreaking. And I was able to get in touch with her grandmother. And she worked on the reservation. And we had a, and she worked actually with domestic violence survivors. And we had a dialogue, email, telephone for about two months. And I was getting, I had a hundred people for the project already in December. And I said, I, I can't, you know, I can't wait anymore. I, I, I really appreciate your trying, but I, I, I'm going to finish the project next month. And I kind of thought that, oh, I'm not going to have, it's not going to happen. I think it was the day after Thanksgiving her grandmother called me and said, because it had happened on the previous Thanksgiving weekend, and she said, uh, uh, Carissa wants to do it. She's the, the 101st survivor, and I'm so proud to have her in the project, and I am proud of her to be somebody that spoke out. I never knew it until I, until I met this woman, but Native Americans have the highest rate of domestic violence incidents of all groups, ethnic groups in the U.S. And I, for her, and it, the thing was that when I spoke with her, I was hearing things that this, this man, this young man did to her. And I, you know, you're listening and you're saying, why the, why did she stay with him? And then as, the, as we talked further and further, it turned out that her mother was abused, domestic uh, abused by her husband. Her grandmother was abused. And the two women that she was meeting that day when the shooting happened, and one of them was killed, the other one was shot, were both in abusive relationships. So I realized that her normal was not normal, that normal for her was to be kicked around, knocked around, and abused by your person that you're in a relationship with. So I give her tremendous um, thanks for breaking that cycle. I mean, I saw it in front of me for somebody that had three generations of domestic violence abuse for her to step out of that comfort zone and to say, I'm going to be in this project and I'm going to talk about what happened to me. She, uh, Carissa's number 101 in the project and probably I would say my, I, I, uh, my most proudest moment of, of seeing actual change in a dynamic you've gotten a, a lot of a lot of response to uh to the work been profiled in several magazines both online and in print i've been on television discussing the project and i wonder what has been the reaction of the people that you photographed to seeing their pictures and seeing the pictures of other people who have suffered the same the same thing well i i mean this crosses a lot of different areas it seems like people are thanking me, so I'm, I'm very happy about that. Survivors are thanking me for bringing attention to their plight and what they've gone through. So that's very, you know, I'm very happy about that. 
So then I'll I'll divide I'll, I'll say this about this where we can get into a situation of black and white. Most of the people who are not African American in the project are probably unless they're in an, an activist position in the gun violence uh, prevention communities, they did not know other people who were shot. So I had quite a few people say to me, I'm, I'm so glad I, I didn't know anybody that else that was shot. I really am so happy to see others, people like me. Unfortunately, with the African-American people who I photographed, everybody knew many people who were shot or, and shot and killed as well. So I went to Philadelphia and I photographed a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, two men. Both the, one of them is Joe, Joe who was an, a bus driver, who was shot. He worked the Scepter in Philadelphia, which is a public transit. He was shot twice while driving his bus, and he was shot a third time on Christmas Eve talking to somebody on a street corner. His son also was shot and killed. Okay, so that, mm. that was one of the people. The other man, Joel, who I photographed, was shot attempting to break up a fight with, in a bar when he was younger. His daughter was shot and survived. And his son was shot and killed in front of him on his front porch. A, a, a nice boy who did nothing wrong, who was shot by somebody just come, coming up to their house. And, and I don't know if it was mistaken identity or what, but it, he, this, this was a, a boy who was not in any kind of trouble who was shot. So there's two situations of two middle-class, hard-working men in the African-American community who had, and, and that's not talking about the people that they know and other family members. That's their immediate family. Both of them knew many people who were shot and shot and killed as well. So that is a whole other, you know, thing that is part, I mean, there's this subtext to this problem, you know, there's different areas, there's different things, but the violence in the African-American community seems to touch on everybody and it's tragic and it's, we see it in Chicago now, it's something that people should be really trying to uh, do something about. How did you start getting the word out on on the project? Because you've gotten a lot of attention to it, and it seems to have snowballed, you know, relatively quickly. You know, what were your thoughts behind trying to get it out there, and how did it actually manifest itself? I never had any intention of getting it out there until I finished the project. So what happened was when I was up to about the fiftieth survivor, David Rosenberg from Slate Magazine saw some of the pictures. And he got in touch with me and asked me if he could do a piece on the project. I should say prior to that, but this would only be for the photographic community that would really know this, American Photo did something in about it as its work in progress when I was up to probably about 20-something people. So they showed about six images, but really that magazine only would go to the photo community mm-hmm. and nothing really happened from that. But then the following March, um, when Slate ran the piece, it kind of went viral. And I had uh, a number of people getting in touch with me wanting to post it. 
It was just, it, it, ha- it had a life of its own. I never thought about the publicity. I thought, well, I have to finish the project before people will be interested in it. But uh, that wasn't the case. You've worked on a, a variety of different personal projects throughout your, your career. And I'd like to talk to you about the first one you did. Because I think the way that you connect with people can be seen in even your earliest work. And that, that's limousine, in which you actually were working as a limousine driver when you were working as a photographer creating these images. Tell us about that. Okay. Yeah, that was probably my, what a difference between shot and limousine. Because limousine <laughs> was uh, pure fun. I had just graduated from the School of Visual Arts and had been told by many teachers, oh, you you know, in order for people to know somebody in the photo world, you have to have a project that uh, people will identify with. So my thesis, I I did something on ballroom dance, and I really liked, I liked working on a, some a project like that. So afterwards, I thought, well, I have to I have to make some money, I have to work. And I have to, and I want to do a project. What could I do that would be different, and you know, would be I could photograph and work at the same time. So then I, I don't know why I just thought about driving a. Li- I like to drive. I I should say I like to drive very much. So I thought, well, maybe if I drive a limousine and and start photographing people in the limousine. So I got a job in at a limousine company in Brooklyn. And I, I drove part-time for them. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It, what, what happened during that project was very interesting psychologically because when people got into the limousine, they thought of me as there, as working for them. Like, oh, oh, we have a woman? Well, that's, that's different. We, you don't see many women limousine drivers. But she works for us. We're going to tell her what to do. She's kind of our, you know, we're going to boss her around today to do what we want to do. And probably uh, with every, most people within a half hour or so, I would say to them, oh, by the way, I'm a photographer and I'm doing a project about people that I drive in the limousine. Will it be, would, would it be okay if I photograph you during the rest of the day? I don't think anybody said no. But all of a sudden, the tables would completely turn because now it was like they thought that they were going to be working for me. Mm. The power dynamic shifted. And then I became, you know, somebody that they were trying to please. Although they didn't, it wasn't so obvious that they were trying to, um, because what happens is, you know, everybody's dressed up and they're on their best behavior for the first part of the trip. But after a while, you know, just because you're dressed up doesn't change your your behavior and you become, you go back to who you are. So, you know, by the end of the night, uh, one of my favorites was this girl who was dressed in this, you know, beautiful gown and she was a bridesmaid and we had to stop at a deli and she went in and got a six pack of Heineken. So she kind of walks out of the deli in this dress with the six pack and, you know, sits in the back of the car with the six pack and She's the same person. She just has this fancy dress on. <laughs> I mean, those kind of things were really funny to watch and see how you don't, you, you, you try your best maybe to be something else, but it's hard to really change your persona. And most people were really happy to be photographed and like the experience. And uh, it, it was pretty positive. It must, it must have been an interesting lesson in the whole power dynamic between the photographer and subject about how 
when you, you, you when you have the camera and you assert yourself as the photographer, that all of a sudden you have a level of control that you otherwise would never have. Yes, and I had at that time uh, I had a big Mamiya camera, so it was a two and a quarter. So it was a strong camera. I mean, the, when you saw this camera, you knew that this was uh, a serious photographer, and that that you know she wasn't. She wasn't kidding. Like she is taking pictures and she is photographing. I also always made sure to, you know, and this is one thing I do with people is tell, give me your contact information. I'm happy to send you pictures. And I always do that when I'm photographing. And most of the time people don't get back in touch with you, but it's a sign of respect for the person that they're giving you something and that you have a responsibility to give something back to them. Well, you've worked on, on several projects between that and, and, and shot. What, what have been some of the things that you've learned that you felt, that you feel are invaluable for doing this kind of work that have nothing to do with the camera? Well, the big thing is respect that I just mentioned. I think that you have to approach people and be very mindful and very respectful of them as individuals. If I'm doing portraits like with shot, I always... Um, sat down and met somebody prior to photographing and we would sit and talk for usually a half hour to an hour. Uh, one person I actually spoke with for three hours before photographing them. It's a way of getting to know people and it also, it, it, I don't want to really photograph people that I'm just photographing and kind of, you know, not giving, giving uh, my attention to their situation, especially in something with a subject like that, that you have, you have to allow people to have to say what they want to say about, about the situation. But on the street when I'm photographing, you know, sometimes I'll ask somebody to photograph them. And sometimes if I photograph somebody and they see me photograph them, I always go back over to them, show them the photo and give them my card and say, just email me. I'm happy to send that. So I think you cannot be a street photographer. Uh, well, I, sh I can't say you cannot. I mean, I'm sure some people are, but I don't want to be a, a person that takes things from people and doesn't acknowledge that they're part of that exchange. Yeah. And, and what are the skills of being a street photographer that have helped you with respect to the work? Because you're doing, you know, portraits of these, these people and they are very conscious of the, the presence of the camera but on working on the street it's a lot more fluid and unpredictable but nevertheless what, what are some of the things that you learned from that practice that has helped you with with these projects the, the shot project was kind of like almost i call it guerrilla photography because if you think about it you kind of um when i explain it now you'll understand i'm i was meeting somebody for the first time we had you know, dialogue before emails or phone conversations. But I was sometimes, a lot of times, in a strange city that I had, had never been in before or a place that I wasn't really so familiar with. So I'm meeting somebody, trying to, trying to locate them, thank goodness for GPS. <laughs> and um, we, we would talk for the half hour. Usually we would meet close to the location where it happened, so I would ask them if they could think of a coffee shop or a McDonald's, a Starbucks, a place where we could sit down and talk prior to photographing. If it was at their home, I was going to their home. And then you're talking to somebody, listening to the story, getting a sense of it. And at the same time, you're, you're thinking, you know, okay, 
in the back of your mind, you're thinking that you're going to have to photograph them. What, how, how might you do it? And then you would go, then I would go to a place that was a kind of a regular place. So how to look at this new place in a short period of time and make an interesting background or make it work with the, the subject that you're photographing. And at that point, you've, you've intruded on, I, I spent more time actually talking to people than actually photographing them. The photographing part of it probably took 10 minutes. The talking to part was far longer, but my feeling is that if you don't spend the time getting to know somebody and having them feel comfortable with you as well, that you're not going to get a good picture. Mm. So it's kind of like you, you meet somebody, you, you, you kind of go back and forth and talk and do this, then you go to the location, then you scan the location to try to figure out what's going to be the best background or try two or three backgrounds and then make the person feel comfortable enough that you can take the photograph and then, you know, it's over. So it was kind of... Um, it was, in a way, like a, another kind of street photography, on the fly, kind of. Yeah. So what, what's next for, for the project? That's a good question. I started uh, thinking about it a few weeks ago, and I'm thinking about how peop guns don't just, violence with guns don't just come from anywhere. They just, I mean, nowhere, I should say. They don't just come from nowhere. They there is a violence in our society that starts at a young age. And I'll tell you how I started thinking about this and thinking that this would be the, the next thing I worked on almost this second part of shot or maybe the uh, second part of maybe a trilogy, or maybe it'll just be two parts. But in December I went to see the revenant and I know that that's a violent movie, but it was violence in context of film that kind of made sense. It wasn't gratuitous. And my boyfriend and I were coming out of the theater, a big theater here in, in New York City on 14th Street. And we saw a, a man and a woman and a little girl in pink who was probably about three at a video game because the, the theater had a video arcade. And the two people had these huge machine guns on their shoulders playing this video game. And the little three-year-old is watching them, mommy and daddy, playing this, this game. And I thought, you know, this is not good to come out of a movie theater, especially in light of the fact that we had Aurora and other movie shootings, and we see people playing with big-ass machine guns on their shoulders, a video game about shooting. So I went down to the manager and tried to talk to him about it, and he kind of would, you know, oh, you have to talk to so-and-so and so on and I actually pursued it, and I called the secretary to the CEO of the company and explained what happened, and I thought that they should look into it, that it wasn't such a good message to have in movie theaters if we were trying to talk about violence in public places. And I wrote a letter, and I thought, you know, oh, okay, maybe they'll do something. They sounded like they were interested in this. So in April, I went back to the movie theater just to go back. To, I hadn't seen a movie there in a while, and I thought, let me go in and, and see if those, that video game, if they ever did anything. And sure enough, I went in at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and there's another father with a 10-year-old playing this video game. Both of them have the machine guns and are playing it. And the whole thing just 
kind of made me think that this is, you know, we've, we've acculturated kids to be violent from the time they're little, to look at guns as part of a game and what's real and what isn't real. And there's, there's more to this than people just picking up a gun and freaking out. There's, a, there's, a, there's something behind that. There's years of, of kind of playing with reality and not reality, what is and what isn't. And I, I'm going to start thinking about how to photograph that, the mm. other things in, in society that are considered harmless or normal and we, which we kind of uh, give our children that might lead to this pattern of accepting violence as an alternative to anger or frustration. Well, Kathy, um, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. It can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Oh, that's a very hard, that's your hardest question. (laughs) There's so many, um, wonderful photographers and good photographers and now I feel like uh, I'll tell you who I think is really an interesting photographer right now because of the political climate and I'll say him just because of the situation we are in politically now who I think sheds a really interesting light on what goes on in politics and his name is Mark Peterson and he has been photographing the political scene for a while and I met him probably two years ago, a year and a half ago at Photo Istanbul. And he, he had a, so he's been doing it for a while. He had political portraits in this show that were remarkable. And he works with MSNBC. And if you want to really see the face of the people that put on a face and the back of uh, ground of the political politics in America, just look at Mark Peterson's photographs, and I think that um, you will have an amazing insight into um, what's really happening in, in, in our political landscape. Well, that's a great suggestion. Okay, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, I really appreciate you making time for us and, and for sharing your project. Thank you so much, and make sure that um, Powerhouse is, is putting out the shot book in spring of two, 2017, so for anybody that really wants to um, look at the project uh, and see a lot of the survivors, all of the survivors, actually, to please uh, check the book out. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to J.P. Miskowski for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes on the candid frame website. I'd like to thank all the people who have recently contributed to the effort, which include Fabricio Cucchiano, Tony Kushner, Ben Martinez, Matt Ballara, John F. Williams, Gail Maracci, Daniel Rock, Sean Brenzi, and Greg Holtfretter. Thank you so much for your support. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. 
Links for each can be found at the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.